Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here, and today we're going to be in the book of Matthew for our final time, Matthew 11. Uh, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. And as you're doing it, let me say, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Oh, oh, lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, we can say it now. It's after Thanksgiving. It's legal, uh, and I hope you're saying it all the time. I am very excited about Christmas, and yet, as you become an adult, maybe, you have had to reach a little further for reasons to be excited about it. I don't know if that's your experience when I was a kid. Obviously, it's just super great. Like, no questions asked. You get presents. You get candy. You get time off school. All of a sudden, everything's weird and different. There's trees inside the house. You get uh, music that you don't normally hear. There's feasting. Everybody's just kind of a little jolly. It's great. As you get older and become more responsible for, like, producing all of that, uh, maybe you do start to have some questions about the, the joy behind it. I mean, if you sit and do budgeting, and I hope you budget just out of common wisdom, I hope you're keeping up with where your dollars are going, and you watch how much Christmas costs, doesn't it make you take a second and say, like, okay, is this merry? Are we sure we're merry on this Christmas? Is this kind of like, okay, Christmas? Uh, then you... You kind of watch the the time that it takes. You watch the travel that it takes. You watch some of the difficulty that it takes. You drink in sort of like that low-grade skepticism that's just sort of happening all the time in our world with the secularity and skepticism. Does this really have true meaning, or are we all just kind of, you know, winking at each other and telling ourselves that this is meaningful? What is the meaning that's here? What is the hope? That's here. We lit the hope candle as part of our Advent season. It's a way of reminding yourself of the themes that are present during Christmas. Well, if you go back to why Christmas began, not just the birth of Christ, but I'm talking about the way that we celebrate the birth of Christ. People talk about it and they say, well, obviously it was Christians trying to co-opt this ceremony or this kind of pagan holiday that took place in Rome. I don't don't think that's historic. I think you can actually say Way back when, Christians had this tradition about when Mary was, when Jesus was conceived, and then they just added 10 months and, or 9 months, and you get to December 25th. I think that's probably more accurate historically, but whatever it is, it's a good analogy now. And here's what I mean. Christmas on December 25th puts Christmas a couple of days after the winter solstice. It's the darkest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. And on the darkest season, the darkest time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, when it's cold, when it's gray, all of us get together and light everything up. We put lights on the outside of our houses. We put lights on the trees. Some of the people put trees outside their houses, light up those trees. That makes a lot more sense to me. And then we also bring trees inside. You go and buy real ones or you pull out the old fake one and you light up the darkness. When I walk around in my house and it's pre-dawn or, you know, of course, the sun goes down at 5 o'clock. So just as soon as you get home from work, everything's dark. Then the house, you can light it up with these beautiful, maybe you got a little nativity scene that lights up. Definitely got the tree. Rachel just recently got some garland that goes down our um, uh, stair. What is that called? Yeah. Good job. Uh, that lights up. And this soft yellow light is filling our home. I love that analogy. Light in the darkness, light in the darkest of the darkness. 
I, I hope when you come to church, you're ready to talk about real things because that's what we talk about. We are going to talk about the light, but we also have to understand the darkness. In this passage in Matthew, we just talked about Jesus, and Jesus is Jesus. He's the one that we're celebrating. He is the Christ that makes Christianity Christianity. And when Jesus preached, he didn't just say, go and see. He didn't just say, your sins are forgiven. He also said, whoa. Not like Keanu Reeves, whoa, but W-O-E, whoa, meaning um, pain, awfulness. This is bad. Whoa. And he just woed over Chorazan and Bethsaida. Why did he say a woe over these cities? Because they were rejecting him. There's darkness. And it's not just physical darkness. It's not just nighttime darkness. It's a spiritual darkness of disconnection from the light. When you and I think about Christmas, we think about what it is to be connected or separated from what we call the capital L, light, in Scripture. God, the King. Jesus says, woe to those cities because they haven't repented and come back to a right relationship with the King. And if you don't come back, woe is you. Even with a human king, if you step against him, it's bad news. It says in Proverbs 16, a king's wrath is a messenger of death. When he's mad at you, it's as though you're already dead, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face, there is life. If instead of the king's wrath, you experience the king's delight in the light of his face, there is life. And his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Winter is over. Spring has come. The rain comes, and the world awakes in green and life. With the king's pleasure. How much more the king of kings. Talk about the king of kings. And you can think there's all kinds of places we could go to see his face in displeasure. But imagine what it is to see his face in pleasure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what it's like to have the king look on you and accept you. So we're talking about Christmas, we're talking about light and dark, but really we're talking about whether you are with the king or against him. Whether he looks on you in approval or in wrath. And Jesus, he he gives us the sweetest promise in the New Testament. But before he gives it to us, he makes it really clear the stakes involved. He says... At, at that time, Jesus declared, Matthew 11, so if you're there, Matthew, this is when we're getting into that part, Matthew 11, verse 25, at that time, so connected closely to what Jesus just said about these woes on these cities, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, can't even talk about him without immediately remembering his kingship, his sovereignty, that you have hidden these things. What things? The things he's just been talking about. The truth that he's just come and preached. The signs that he's just come and performed that give people a clear idea of who he is and who God is. The messenger that has come. The anointed one. The Messiah. The Christ. Those are the things he's talking about. He's talking about this gospel message. Who Jesus is. But God, the Father, has hidden these things 
from a group of people and then revealed them to a group of people. Look at it. He has hidden these things from the wise and understanding. They're wise. There's irony here. Wouldn't the wise and the understanding understand these things? No. But instead, you've revealed them. You've allowed them to be seen and understood by the little children. Now, we deify little kids, and I love them. I mean, I'm, I'm part of that same problem. You know, Rachel and I serve the kids before we serve ourselves food. There was years where we didn't have hot dinners because every time you get them finally settled, and then the first one's done by the time you serve the last one, and then you finally get to eat, you just got to eat quick because it's already cold. I get it. You know, we probably should do like the Middle East or whatever, and you just serve yourself first, and then the kids, you know, play with the dogs or whatever. I, I, I get that. But the Bible holds little children in really high regard because these little children are examples to us. Those are the ones that seem to get this revelation. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Lord, Jesus, is saying that the Son is the only way to fix this woe problem. That the difference, the the disconnect between us and God can only be addressed in one way. There's an exclusivity here. There's only one shop that sells this. There's only one relationship that begets this. There's there's only one way to get this life. Now, again, I I think our culture gets really ah, uncomfortable with that kind of language because it is so judgmental and kind of to all these other worldviews. How can you say that yours is right and say that all these others are wrong? Well, maybe see it the way that the Scripture sees it. Jesus is being really clear here. He's not talking about a way. He's not talking about a principle. He's not talking about a a thing you should do. He's talking about a relationship with God. He's talking about being in right relationship with God. And he's very clear that that only happens one way. Of course it only happens one way. How can you be in relationship with one person by being in relationship with somebody else? You say, how can you say that Buddha won't get you to God? Well, the same reason that I can say that if if I want to marry a woman, the worst way to marry her is to try and get close by marrying her sister. It's weird. It's a weird analogy. I get it. But I think it works. You can't get close to Christ by getting close to somebody else. You talk about it as a way. You talk about it as a principle. And you say, well, it's all the golden rule. It's all just, you know, be nice to each other. That's what all religion is teaching. No. Christianity is trying to introduce you to God, namely Christ. Christianity is talking about a relationship. So, of course, the only way to be in that relationship is to be in that relationship. You can't get into a relationship with somebody else and expect it to be a relationship with him. Do you see what I'm saying? There's only one way because there's only one him. And you're either with him or you're not. You're with somebody else, okay, but you're not with him. 
That's what we're talking about with this exclusivity. That's what he's talking about. Of course, there's only one way to him. There's only one him. And in him was life, and this life was the light of men. We're we're getting to this delicate point here. Jesus has life, and it's definitely a narrow gate. Earlier in Matthew, we have the Sermon on the Mount, and he describes this way to himself as a narrow gate. How do you get into this narrow gate to have the Lord look on you with life instead of woe and destruction? No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we've said, this is what life is. And then we get down into this very specific funnel that there's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So all of a sudden, the Son has life. And he's the only one. Who's he going to give it to? Verse 28. Come to me. All. (laughs) All. All who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who's he going to give it to? <laughs> all. All. There is a caveat. It doesn't just say all, period. It says all, and then it says, who labor and are heavy laden. And there's a reason that he says that. I think there's something very interesting there. First, let's understand it positively, and then let's understand who it doesn't mean. First, it does say that if you are heavy laden, if you are weary, he will give you rest. That rest is later qualified. I think he means specifically rest for your souls, which I think means then that the burden he's talking about is a burden on your soul. It's not that you happen to be carrying heavy weight physically. I think we get this. He's talking about a heavy weight that you might be carrying in here. If you are heavy laden, if you are weary, you're tired, what does that come from? I think we talk about things that we all understand pretty quickly when we talk about what makes us so tired in our heart. You think about anxiety. Oh my gosh, what makes your day shorter? What makes the night just never seem to give you enough rest? Like anxiety, like fear. Do you know what it's like to be laden with shame? There's guilt. Guilt says I'm wrong. I, I did something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. People live with a tremendous amount of shame, and that shame is like a weight that drags them down. It's absolutely. uh, You imagine what it looks like to say to yourself, I am something bad. That shame, it adds weight to your soul with every look from every person, because every person is either going to figure out or not your actual wickedness. You, every time you're quiet enough in your own mind and in your own heart to sort of just take a breath, are going to feel again that disgusting, gritty feeling of your own shame. You imagine the people that came to Christ and received forgiveness. Many of them were people that felt shame. Prostitutes, tax collectors. Those that felt shame or felt dirty because of their physical situation, like their leprosy, 
their blindness, their crippledness, which had, and we talked about this in the last series, I think, had this sort of overtone of moral depravity put on top of it. What makes you feel unclean? What makes you feel weighted? You don't come to him because you're good. You come to him because you're bad. And for those people that you say, okay, I actually do have that weight. Those are the people that Jesus says can come to him. Those people that feel that weight are in a phenomenal position because those are the people. You're wondering, who is the son going to give this light and life to? He's got it. He's the only one that has it. We got to get it. We got to get it from him. Who's he going to give it to? The people that are actually feeling that weight, feeling that dirt, feeling that ladenness, you're in the best position. He just said, if that's you, you come to him (laughs) and he gives you life. If you feel like you're in that position, great job. Fantastic. Christianity, it's for you. You're like a little child at that point because you're coming to him in need. Hands open, asking. You don't have anything to barter with. You know who's in a worse position than you? There are those in a worse position than you. He doesn't give that light because it says all, and then immediately says all who labor and are heavy laden. So there's, there's going to be somebody outside of that all. And who is outside of that all? Well, it's the proud. He's saying these things right after the woes that he pronounces. And one of the woes that he pronounces is on Capernaum. And he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What is Capernaum's sin right there? Why are they rejecting Because in their own minds, they are highly exalted, lifted up. They see themselves as good. They see themselves as wise. They see themselves as understanding. They see themselves as worthy. Do you know the only people who don't receive the Son? It's the ones that don't ask. It's the ones that don't think they need him. It's the ones with this tremendously difficult-to-shake fantasy that you really are the king of all things. Doesn't it seem like it's the easiest proposition in the world to disprove that you're in charge of you? That you're not the king of all things? Everything in your life proves it all day, every day. You try to do anything, and immediately there are all kinds of obstacles. There's all kinds of things that are messed up in you, in the world, and you can't overcome it. You know that you have limitation, and yet we have this fantasy, every single one of us, we have this fantasy that maybe we really are the most important thing in the universe. Maybe we really are God. That may not resonate with you. It may sound too crazy, but but when you make the decision... To disobey God, you are implying to yourself that you have the right to veto God. It's bad to sin. Don't do it. But in addition to sinning, you are also telling yourself with the pleasure of that sin, with the habit that you formed, with the moment, that you have the right to veto God and his law. What does that make you? To yourself. What fantasy are you creating about yourself? That you're God. 
Chorazin shared in that fantasy. They had this extremely difficult to shake fantasy that they would be exalted to heaven, that they were in fact worthy, not necessarily to stand before the king, but probably even to be the king. It's only when we will abandon that fantasy. It's only when we understand that we are in darkness and require light that we receive this gift. What he calls the light burden. Look at verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So he's describing us like a beast of burden, like an ox, and you put a yoke on an ox. It was a way for you to strap something heavy to an ox so that the ox could pull. And you could pull with a yoke uh, like a um, wagon. You could pull stuff or you could pull a plow. Either case, you need the strength of the ox and you yoke to connect that strength to whatever burden you're making that ox pull. So it doesn't sound great yet. What does he say, though? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Irony there. Seems so crazy. How does a yoke equal rest? For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You feel the irony, and then he just condenses it. He puts it right in front of your face by putting the two words right next to each other. Yoke is easy. Burden is light. How's he doing that? Well, first, let's understand what he means by this yoke. He's saying you have to reject this other way and choose him instead. And if you choose him, you do take upon yourself his commands, his teaching. He's your savior. He's also your Lord. He comes before you and he puts his commands on you. That is like a yoke. But what does the Bible say about his commands? And this seems so crazy because we want only to follow our own commands. Submitting to anybody else's purposes seems like a tremendous slavery. But it says in 1 John 5, this is the love of God. That we keep his commands and his commandments are not burdensome. How is the yoke easy? How is the burden light? Because he carries it. (laughs) Because it's his yoke. Compare and contrast. In Matthew 23, Jesus says that the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders. That's a yoke. That's a heavy burden. But they are not willing themselves to move those burdens with their finger. Doesn't that sound like religion? You're telling other people... You have to live this way. You have to perform this perfect lifestyle. You have to be this perfect thing. Boom, 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 boom. These heavy burdens that you start tying up and laying on top of somebody and you go, okay, good luck. And you just kick them. I think people think that's what they're going to experience when they show up at a church. That you're going to show up at a church and the church is going to say, hey, so glad that you're here. Actually, though, you're pretty terrible. You're terrible in these 45 ways, and you need to change all 45 of them. Good luck. Boom. And you kick them out to go try and do whatever they can that week. What ends up happening is that you can't, of course, so you just pretend that you are. And then the whole place is filled with hypocrites lying to each other and doing things to make themselves not feel so bad about the lying. That's a very dark picture of churches. But I think that that's what Jesus is saying about what a Phariseeism does. It's not what he does. says the Pharisees won't move a finger to help with this heavy burden. But Jesus, 
says about himself that he is lowly and gentle. That he, he gives you his burden and then he stoops under you to lift that burden. So it says in Philippians, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You say Christianity is about these morals that you can't obtain. Christianity is about Christ. Christ taught a law that was perfect. And he said about the Old Testament that not a dot, not iota of it would pass away. He absolutely affirmed the holiness standard that God gave us. And then he went to a cross and died. He humbled himself to become a servant, not just being born, not just living among us, not just washing disciples' feet, but then humbling himself even further down into the death that we deserve for our sin before a holy God. And then he took that upon himself too. He yoked himself under the wrath of God that you and I deserve. That shame feeling is not demonic. It might become demonic. It might be kind of twisted in your head and get all lied up and whatever. But the, the reaction of shame is a legitimate, reasonable reaction to doing something shameful. What Jesus has come to do is to take that shame and put it on himself instead. You're carrying this heavy burden. He puts himself under you and then lifts you. How did he do it? Pharisees wouldn't lift a finger to try and help you with that burden. Jesus lifts a cross. That's what one pastor said. He said it really well. He said, Jesus didn't just lift his finger, but a cross that he might lift your burden. He might take your burden. He, he stands with you. And man, when I read these verses, I get excited about that. That is the gospel message. And then when I think about evangelism, it kind of goes away a little bit. Oh man, this is so comforting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jesus. You saved me. You've taken away my shame. Okay, but I've still got to live Christianity. And the yoke all of a sudden drops again. I've still got to share the gospel with all of my neighbors, and the yoke drops even heavier. I've still got to somehow get on a plane and figure out where India is and go share the gospel with those people too. Yoke gets even heavier. Well, no, absolutely not. Because the Jesus that stood with you for salvation stands with you for all these other commands that he's given you. It's only my pride that thinks now it's my job to keep going. It is my job to keep going, but it's my job to keep going as he lifts that burden right there with me. Here's a story from a missionary. There was a guy named John Patton. He was a missionary around the same time, late sort of 19th century as uh, our little um, Lottie Moon. But he was in a place kind of in the South Pacific where there was uh, cannibalism. And he was with this group. He was trying to minister to this group of cannibals. And there was a point at which the cannibals were mobilized with muskets to go find him and kill him. And he's running because he knows they're coming. And this man that he can't really trust tells him, go and hide up in that tree and I'll tell him you went that way. And they'll go running away and then you'll be safe. Go hide up in the chestnut tree, John. As a missionary, this feels exactly like John the Baptist. It's so serendipitous that his name was John. 
as a missionary, doing exactly what he's being told. He's being chased by the people that he's trying to bring the light of the gospel to, and they're going to chase him, shoot him, and eat him. He did what he was supposed to do. And here they come after him. And yet, listen to what he says it's like to carry the light burden. He goes up in the tree, and the hours spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, and yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I would not grudge (laughs) to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? (laughs) He's talking about a light burden. How is the burden light? Because Jesus is there helping you lift it. Is he not there in your evangelism? He absolutely is. Is he not there if you look into the face of death itself? How do we know that he absolutely is? Because he's already done that for you. He already went into death and blew a hole out of the back of it. So though we die, yet we shall live. No, it's, it's a light burden. And so as you look at the command, this is our last week in this light burden thing, and we kind of tried to sew it together with Christmas, and we'll do all Christmas from here. But when you think about the command that he has given you to go and make disciples of all nations, to live a life of sanctification, to this is God's will for you, your sanctification, you, you are commanded to pursue righteousness, and you are commanded to go and take this gospel and share this gospel with other people. How is it a light burden. It is a light burden because you are commanded to take the gospel to other people that you have yourself experienced. It is a light burden because you go and you tell other people, though I was blind, yet now I see. It is your job as a Christian to go to Christ and have him lift your heavy burden, to experience what it's like to have been under heavy burden and now find that it's light in Jesus. To go to the sun to find that healing and then to go and tell other people, likewise, you are living under a heavy burden. Let Jesus lift it. And until you're ready to do that, let me stand by you and lift as well as I can, pointing to the only one who can actually lift this burden. Do you see the pain and the glory that's being described? That's what you're called to, Christian. You're called to look into the the face of this Christ, to abide in him, and then have him bear fruit through you. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself, it has to abide in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Come to Christ, have him lift your burden, and then walk around and share that same fruit with all the world. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father.
just like every sermon I ever preach, I feel like it's so abstract. I don't really know what people are supposed to go and do. But we're not supposed to tie up heavy burdens and then kick people out the door. We're supposed to introduce people to the one who will lift that burden with them. I pray this morning that the words that we've spoken from Matthew, from John, looking through the Old Testament and Proverbs and Psalms, will be stuff your spirit uses to introduce us either again or for the first time to the Christ, to Jesus who loves us, got up under that yoke and lifts it up. The yoke of sin and death, the yoke of evangelism, the yoke of life in the sinful world. He, he stoops, not just to incarnation, but to death itself in order to lift back up the burden we could never carry. Lord, please, by faith, give people Jesus this morning. People who don't know them, that they might know him for the first time, people that do know him, so we can turn from our pride and like little children, receive good gifts from our Father. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.